Okay, welcome. It's always an honor to um, make the trip. It's about 25 miles from where I, I live uh, to come down here to the big city of Cambridge. <laughs> and uh, I lived here for many years. Uh, Larry Rosenberg, the, one of the, well, the primary founder here, was uh, my main mentor. And uh, I lived many years just doing classes here and then slowly began to travel and teach with him. And then uh, actually um, many years ago, about 14 years ago, he and I and uh, another and a woman um, founded this center up in Newburyport. So I, I love coming back to and I, and I lived in Cambridge when I was a really little kid um, when my dad was still at school uh, getting his, his doctorate. And I lived in, I grew up in Hanover, New Hampshire, so where he was a professor. So it's great to be back, and um, what I'd like to speak of tonight, I'm just going to do a reflection a bit on the, uh, uh, based on actually an article I just wrote that will be published in a couple days in the paper up in Newburyport, which is on the uh, transformative power of, of inner peace. And that's probably a lot of the reason why we're here. How many people can relate to that, thinking that if we touch inner peace, it's going to transform something? in a positive way. Show of hands, let's see if everybody's, if we're all on the same page to start. Okay, good. And that's inner transformation and outer transformation. Um, and then it'll be a uh, practice discussion after that, okay? So I hope it's a fruitful, uh, fruitful evening. And we go till nine, is that correct? It's still, or 8.45? 8.45, it's gotten, yeah, okay. <laughs> good, 8.40, thank you. It's a good reminder. So how many people know there's a kind of a, a traditional teaching out there that uh, the Dalai Lama has, Thich Nhat Hanh, some of the major kind of uh, Buddhist teachers, that peace starts at home and then spreads from there. So like the Dalai Lama gives a teaching where if you want peace in the world, then start with peace in yourself and then let that influence the peace in our families, our communities, our societies, and the whole world. So this is a pretty basic uh, theoretical framework for this whole inward journey that insight meditation is based around. Yeah? We're gaining insight into the, the, the nature of some qualities inside ourselves that actually do, they are transformative in our own experience, and that there's a, a sense that our simple presence has an effect naturally on all the people that we influence. And so I want to just share a few stories that, uh, that, I, uh, that I think are powerful and then draw some lessons. And then maybe we can open it up and see, if, see what our own experience is and explore more. So the first one is from the ancient Buddhist king of Ashoka. Does anyone know the story of Ashok or Ashoka? So there was an ancient, and I'm not a scholar, so please don't. If we have any ancient Indian scholars in here, say, nope, you got the dates wrong. No. It's, it's <laughs> so uh, Ashoka was considered, he was in the Indian subcontinent, um, and he was considered one of the great rulers. Um, I, don't, I don't know how many, like a millennia ago or so. I don't know exactly. And he expanded to have the, lar the, largest, em the largest kingdom in, in the subcontinent, so what India is now. And he did it through brutality, and he did it through force. 
And one day after a battle had taken place, he peered down from above on the field and he just saw these, this incredible carnage. All these dead bodies, blood, etc. And he, he was victorious. And he looked down and his heart was shaken a little bit just by seeing the magnitude of all the suffering. And then walking right through the midst of the field with all these dead bodies was a monk was a saffron-robed, clad Buddhist monk walking peacefully, body erect, a mindful walk. And Ashok saw him and thought, this man is filled with peace in the midst of such suffering. And it actually transformed his heart. So the story goes. He saw that and then he, something was very, was deeply shaken And if you know the rest of the story of Ashok, what he did was he uh, stopped his warring. He created an empire that was one of the most progressive of the day, where there was tremendous uh, religious uh, diversity, respect for all different religions. He built one of the most advanced aqueduct systems in the world so all his people could have good cleaning water, very advanced education, and... To this day, the Ashokan, symbol of the Shokan is the eight spokes of the, the Buddhist wheel, actually, the Eightfold Path, are uh, on the Indian flag to this day from the time of Ashok. And the, it's quite well documented that he had a deep transformative experience by seeing peace in the midst of chaos that he had created. So just taking in that image and feeling that, for ourselves. So this is meant to be a reflection as well, seeing if there can be any resonance in our own lives of when we've seen symbols of peace or just seen moments of peace and chaos and it's actually given our heart, buoyed our heart in some way. There was a different possibility and maybe that guided us to make different decisions. So that's the first story. The second one is um, from Thich Nhat Hanh, the how many people know who Thich Nhat Hanh is? Is everybody? Okay, most people. So he's, uh, he's still alive, quite old, um, but he was a, a Vietnamese, again, still is, a Vietnamese uh, Buddhist master who, uh, actually in 1962, he was nominated by Martin Luther King for the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, too bad he didn't win, but it would have been a nice symbol, but it still is a nice symbol. So what his, he was a simple Buddhist monk, um, practicing values of compassion and mindfulness. And he was actually during the Vietnam War, when the South and the North were at, at odds, he tried to create a, a nonviolent third alternative. And uh, neither side took really kindly to this. So he and his people, they tried to escape the people that were caught. Uh, they were caught in the middle of this conflict. Uh, so they tried to escape to, some of them tried to escape on boats, rickety boats that go out in the ocean and try to make it to Thailand to safety. And a lot of them were lost at, uh, lost in the journey in the stormy seas. And I guess it was documented uh, later on that some of the boats people panicked and that, you know, led to their demise to some extent. But 
Thich Nhat Hanh found out that in a lot of the boats that made it, where the people survived, there was at least one person that had a calm demeanor, that had some sense of inner peace, and that that provided a, a ballast in a way, a psychological strength that helped people, help the boat to actually, uh, help them to be more fit in their quest to survive, to be with the difficult conditions. So of course we can use this as a, we can think about this in our own lives too, can't we? Our families are boats, yeah? Our workplaces are boats in a way. Our planet is a boat, yeah? Our culture is. And so just that, that image, that peace, that if there's one person that has peace, and of course a number of these people that are on the boats were trained, were trained in peace. Yeah, they were monks, nuns, and people that were deeply devoted to touching peace. And so the third example is um, just a little one from uh, my own life, actually, when I was traveling in India. I spent a number of years in India, and um, in the 1980s, mostly, and, and 90s. Um, I went there and I studied intensively with uh, some of the, with uh, Deepama and Manindra and other, other teachers um, in different traditions. And one time when I was traveling, I met a, uh, I met a physics professor from Swarthmore. He was uh, an, an Indian national who was, who was teaching here. And he, uh, he was taking time off to, to go to village India and record the sacred music, because he was a musician as well, that was being lost in a lot of the villages in India. And we, just, we became quite friendly, and he, uh, he, you know, I said, how's it going? He said, well, I have a problem because I brought over a nice recording device, and it, it's not working anymore. So I had a, uh, does anyone remember Walkmans? I had a Walkman Pro with the, right, like the really nice chromium dioxide, what were the tapes? And everything. Okay. Good, I'm in the right crowd. <laughs> So I went and uh, I went and got the I went and got the, the the Walkman Pro and gave it to him. I just gave it to him because I, you know. And so, what does this have to do with? This is just generosity. What does this have to do with peace? Well, it has a lot to do with peace. So just reflect on our own lives when we can give something up that we value, especially when we feel. And that was a kept. That's a you know. It's kind of different when we're. In a, in a certain situation where our houses and our property and things like that. But uh, in this situation, it was something that I valued. But I saw quite clearly that my own pleasure that I was gaining wasn't as important as this potential greater good. And that I had enough inner sufficiency, self-sufficiency, buoyancy, so that my happiness wasn't so tied to this object that I couldn't give it up. So, and that's an example of how we think that generosity is just a, comes from generosity, but often, if you think about when you give, there's a feeling of enough buoyancy in our hearts and minds, enough inner peace, enough space, so that we really can let go of certain things, especially if we see, and that was a very simple example of just responding to a, to a need. I had another example, actually, where I gave, a, a, there was a German monk in Bodh Gaya in India, and um, he, I gave him a watch at a Western. He said, my watch was stolen, so I gave it to him. And, and I figured, I'll just pick up another one. Yeah? And this was, this was in the, you know, this is 30 years ago or so. 
And uh, I tried to buy watches there. I, I don't want to make any. And I couldn't get one that would work for more than like two weeks. So I didn't have accurate time for <laughs> I bought like three watches I couldn't get. So that I don't know if that was wise giving or not. But, uh, <laughs> but these are all examples of a sense of where some inner peace manifests in, in different ways in ourselves. Um, and there's a story of uh, Ryokan, who was this uh, wonderful Buddhist uh, Zen monk. And then he became kind of a, a wandering poet monk uh, in Japan. And he's a really beloved, beloved figure a couple of centuries ago. And uh, actually, I went, I went after I finished college um, a few miles from here, I went to Japan in 1985, and I, st- I went and studied Zen for a few years. And I, I uh, went to different monasteries, and the one I stayed at the longest um, was with a monk. And I, I stayed there because it was a kind of free form. It was still Zen, so it was very disciplined. And I spent time learning the language and such. Um, and I, I, I chose this one monastery because this, this, uh, this monk, the abbot, he just had this little room in the middle of the monastery. And in his room, he had this freestyle he like he wasn't so rigid. Of course, there was a lot of discipline in those monasteries, and you get up at three thirty, and you know I still have sort of a little bit numbness in my toes from being the gong ringer at three in the morning and having ice up on my whatever. This isn't about that. <laughs> uh, but he had this he had this incredible freestyle in him where he even though he was in this he was the abbot and he did a really good job of being the leader of this monastery. He was he had a spirit of, of freedom and joy. And I, I'm, sometimes he'd be sitting, all the monks, when you eat in the Zen monastery, it's very fast. And, and he would just be, I remember times when everybody would be done, everyone's just sitting, waiting to get up. And uh, he's just sitting at the end of the table, just with a big smile, just chomping away slowly, mindfully, like just enjoying himself. So, and some of the wheelbarrows had a little bit of rust on them. They weren't like all perfect. So he had a free spirit. And in his room was a, was a, um, a calligraphy done by Ryokan. And he was kind of, his style was kind of stylized. Uh, Ryokan left the monastery, but this kind of free spirit. So what Ryokan did is he traveled. He traveled around. He played with, there's wonderful, uh, there's a wonderful book called One One Robe, One Bowl that has a lot of his poetry and his stories of his life. And he was incredibly compassionate, just a natural kind of compassion from his, and he didn't need the the outer discipline so much. He had been through that and he he was wandering free. So he was asked one time, we could tell a lot of Ryokan stories, but he was asked one time by, um, when he had left to be a monk, he had left some responsibility in his family. Uh, there was a business, I guess. And his nephew was the one that was, was taking care of it. And there was a fair amount of savings that kept it going. Uh, and I guess his nephew was pretty irresponsible with the money. He was uh, spending it in very uh, inappropriate, irresponsible ways. So uh, even though Ryokan was very far away, he got word. Um, that from his brother that he should come and talk to because he was this revered meditation master he should come and talk to his nephew and that this tell him to straighten out right <laughs> so he took a long journey to get there he stayed for a few days and then there's i, I did a little research the, the story's told in different ways the end but i think it, it really gets to the to the to the point of what we're discussing tonight so uh they all had a positive result so there were three endings all similar, where he didn't say anything. He didn't give any advice 
to the nephew. He didn't say, you better stop spending your money in this way and that. But what he did when he was leaving, he was an old man, he said, oh, and his nephew saw him to the door and he said, oh, will you please, uh, I'm old and it's hard for me to bend over, will you please tie my shoes for me? So the first uh, sort of variation on the story I heard was that as he was saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm elderly, please tie my shoe, he said, I'm elderly and you will grow old too. And the nephew tied a shoe, and then he left. And the nephew stopped doing his his bad behavior. Second story is that he bent down to tie his his shoe for him, and a single tear dropped from Ryokan's eye and landed on the nephew. And he, after he left, didn't say anything after he left, he stopped his bad behavior. And the third one is there was no tear, there was no verbal teaching, but he was just so present, so there, and there was just such a connection that once again, the nephew changed his behavior. So these are all expressions. One is a, is a teaching that we're all bonded by the vicissitudes of life. Yeah, the first one which is often what we find ourselves uh, engaged in when we can open our hearts to our common humanity or to the everything, the cycles of change, that often our behavior that causes harm for ourselves and others, and this is really basic in the Buddhist teachings, is that we're not aligned with this. We don't see it. We don't see that we're all that things change in the way a youth doesn't see that they're going to get old. and So they maybe do things that are just not sensitive to this fact. So the Four Noble Truths is based on the teaching that suffering. Does everyone know the Four Noble Truths? Who, who does not know? Who has not heard of the Four Noble Truths? Everyone has. Good. So the first of the Noble Truths that suffering exists, and it's based on Second one is unwise clinging. Unwise clinging is based on not seeing the nature of things. So not being able to actually align ourselves with seeing clearly and then responding from that. They're universals in life. When we see into this again and again, change, we're all going to go through change. We do it. It happens every day. How much suffering is caused when we just think it has to be this way, it has to be fixed. But it's not. Things are changing, positive, negative, keeps going on. So this is a really simple teaching. And sometimes when our hearts and minds are ripe and we receive this, when there's enough balance in the heart and the mind, then it penetrates, it's transformative, and it's a way to touch peace. And the third of the truths is that there is a possibility of peace. It's that we all have an innate capacity in our hearts and minds for a depth of freedom and responsiveness which this is, these reflections are around, that is of a very different order than when we process everything through our really separate negotiating kind of mind, that there's a whole different possibility of freedom that exists when we let go of unwise clinging, when we see the natural law of things, of change, of flow. And the fourth of the noble truths is how do we practice to realize this? 
And that's what we do here, don't we? We learn to calm and steady our attention. And then through that, we see clearly in a way that hopefully transforms our relationship to experience. And then when our own experience is transformed, what happens when that meets the world? That's really the question we live in our practice, when our our formal practice and our daily life meet each other. And we learn to touch that quality where there are moments and there's a continuity of a deeper freedom. And that meets life. What happens there? So this first, the first teaching story is that he was received teachings. And if you look at the classical Buddhist teachings, a lot of the teachings are the Buddha gave this, you know, give this talk to 500 monks and nuns, and they were all enlightened. You ever, who's, who's read the classical teachings? Some of them, where they all, it all, it's like, I wouldn't say it's a Hollywood ending, but it's like the equivalent. <laughs> what does that mean? It means their hearts and their minds were poised so that when, when, when they received the actual teachings, it landed in the heart. Yeah. That's why even here, that's why we sit before we receive a Dharma reflection in a certain way. We calm ourselves so our hearts and minds can be more poised to take in. And then that becomes, how does that land in our actual experience in our lives? How does that touch us? How does that transform? Yeah. So this was, a ver- this was an oral teaching. The second one is also from the place of wisdom. When your heart is more peaceful, and in a way where it's actually peaceful, but not just peaceful from blocking things out, but fundamentally touching something that has a stability, that has a buoyancy, a self-sufficiency. How many people have tasted moments like that, where you really feel that it's, you've actually touched something that's, that's valid, that's real, that you didn't, you didn't know that was, was in the nature of our hearts and minds? We've, have we all had that? some extent yeah so then when that meets the world (coughs) and we see suffering that's based on just unwise just it seems unnecessary do we go through our days seeing in our in our I know for myself that in my own behavior patterns I often see things that are patterns that are so deep that I've done certain reactive patterns that are deep based on deep conditioning there's not there's not to be a lot of blame involved but where I see, wow, those are really deep, and they keep causing suffering, myself and others, some reactive patterns. And it's so hard to just to, to wish, you can't, I can't wish them away. I have, to, I have to work with them. But there's a deep, <coughs> am I alone in this? So there's a, a, a teaching story from Mula Nasruddin, who's this kind of this crazy crazy wisdom guy from, I think it was a Persian tradition, Sufi Persian tradition, I think, where he, uh, he's just like a crazy saint. So he's by the side of the road and he's eating hot peppers one by one. He's crying. He's just crying and crying. Keeps eating them, chomping, chomping, chomping. And someone comes by, one of his friends, Mula, what are you doing? He's just suffering. It's unnecessary, right? He doesn't have to eat the things. He said, I'm waiting for a sweet one. So how much, no, how many times in our lives do we keep doing something just by habit? It's not even, it's just habit. It, we don't see it. We don't see the pattern. We don't see the pattern of clinging. We don't, the information isn't there quick enough. And ah, again, <laughs> right? Because we think somehow it's going to happen. So there's a deep, when we really feel this in ourselves and, it's, and in the world, doesn't, doesn't it seem like there's just tremendous unnecessary suffering in the world? 
And what do I mean by unnecessary? So in the, in the Buddhist teachings, there's kind of two kinds of suffering. One is the suffering that happens as being a human being, that physical suffering that happens as we age, as we get sick, as we die. Uh, this, the kind of emotional suffering that happens when we're separated from things that we love or we're connected to things that we don't want to be with in an extended way. Yeah, these are just, these are like part of the human condition, unfortunately, but they are. But then there's the suffering of what our inner relationship is to the vicissitudes of life. And that a lot of that can be unnecessary. So there's an example of two arrows that's given where the Buddha, like there's actually a, some warriors on a field. They're spread out on a hillside and they're, they're like arrows are going back and forth between the enemy. It's over, over a knoll. They can't see them. And someone gets shot, hit by the arrow. And instead of, and they need to do one of two things. They have to get it out or they got to call for help. The other, their, their allies can't see them, but they're, I mean, they're, they're friends. They're, but they're, if they call out for them, they'll come. So what does this person do? What do we do sometimes when things don't go the way we want? So this, in this example, what the person does is they, they, they start saying, how dare that person shoot me? And they start looking and saying, what kind of arrow is this? They're not worried. They're not trying to get, they're not trying to alleviate the situation. They're blaming another or they're blaming themselves. How could I put myself in this situation? And they're spinning around and around in their heads. And they're not solving the problem as effectively as they could. So this is called the, the, the teaching of the two arrows because they shoot themselves. They're shot by one arrow and then they shoot themselves with a second arrow. How many times do we do that ad nauseum? We can, carry, we can carry things with us and keep wishing it was different than it was to the, to the end of our lives. Yeah? What is this? So Ryokan, when his tear fell on his nephew, that's, that's, that just, that's just that incredible heart that is open to the plight of the human condition in a way. It's like there's just so much. He didn't need to be acting out, spending his money in wine, women, and song in a way that was destroying his family business, right? That's what he was doing. So it's just, it's just this, this heart opening that can happen when the heart has touched something that's much deeper and broader than we ever thought possible. And that heart begins to just hold. The mind isn't, freedom isn't located in one area. Once we touch that, it's, the quality of awakening is much bigger. So that opens, especially when that's stable and open, that opens to, to whatever we see. There's less of a separation. And so we can respond naturally just through feeling. That's natural compassion to the just feeling into what the actual condition is of life. And so a tear fell from that place. And the purity of that provided a transformative energy. And then the final one is just the simple, pure presence of being. Do you ever notice when you're with someone sometimes, someone's really listening to you? Not like this. <laughs> but just really tuned in and you can tell that they're right there with you. They really, they're really listening. A really deep sense of presence. Or maybe sometimes you feel that. And just through your sense of being, you know that it's, you just know. You know you're the person on that boat. In, in your family, when there are moments when... Oh, get a little closer? Okay, thanks. 
And we can all probably relate to moments when we're calm in the midst of a storm and how that actually, what the actions that come out of that, just, or even just the presence, how that naturally has a ripple effect on those around us or feeling it when others have that. How many people have had that in your work? Who's gotten calm in a situation where everyone was getting riled up? Can you raise your hands? Like, even once. <laughs> and you actually felt that sense of just like a bomb, like, a, like it had some natural effect. Yeah? How many people have had that with other people where you've had a presence in your life that really felt just by their being that it was, that it was calming, that you could go to at times? Yeah, good. So these are, exa- these are natural examples of how dropping into a place where we're not at, at war, where we're touching something deeper and abiding in that, that that has a natural effect. Often it's thought of as a, it's a little close, as a, uh, um, as a ripple effect. Like if you, drop a, if you drop a pebble in a pond, it's natural, it's natural effect is to spread out. They're just, they're just ripple effects. So that peace is actually a natural outcome of this and that that affects the conditions around it. So does that mean we don't, have, we don't act in the world for peace intentionally? That it's all just going to happen by itself? And does it mean we can wish ourselves into these transformative states of peace? Does it? I don't think so. First, we have to train. Right? That monk walking through the carnage who actually had a peaceful demeanor in that situation, did that happen all by itself? Probably not. Definitely not. Unless he's one of the few that some people have a real natural sense of that. But that's pretty rare, I think. Yeah. And some people, and it's interesting because in crisis, sometimes that happens for short periods. People dropped all their fighting, they dropped their fighting agendas and they, or their, their competitive agendas and their fear and they just, what needs to be done and there's a sense of quiet. But then it all kicks back in. So it's, that's pointing to that natural capacity we have. So it's training just like the people on the boat are training and we train. And that's a very beautiful thing where we don't have to intend it. We just practice it and then we bring that presence to what makes up our life. Now within that, what happens when we don't feel peace? If we're more present, let's say we're practicing calming and steadying our attention, yeah, and then we're bringing that into our life, and then we get riled up, we feel the opposite of peace. How do we work with that? Is the opposite of peace the gateway into peace? In the wisdom teaching, it is. So we're not trying to create the ideal of peace. Because that's how, that's when we receive teaching, like, oh, it'd be so nice, right? Those are lovely stories, the boat, the, you know, Ashoka, like, I don't know about the Walkman one, whatever, but still, right? Like, we have that sense that, okay, it's an ideal. And often we come to practice with an ideal. But then when it's on the ground, it's like, hey, this isn't the ideal. I'm not peaceful right now. What's wonderful about the practice is that that's what we wake up to. That sense of, Inner discord is the same. It's the same as what we see in the outer world. And how do we hold that? Can we moment by moment 
and that's the fourth of the Eightfold Path, the training. The training of creating harmony, creating intention, having, having a view towards understanding that there's a reason why there's all this unnecessary suffering, that our hearts and our minds don't see clearly. We're trying to fight the powers that are existing within us and around us, not aligning ourselves, We're struggling, and the heart gets constricted that way and fights. So we, we change that view. We learn to recognize, and that's what teachings do, and then we try to create harmony, which is, which is to have respect for life, for ourselves, and the different levels of life. That creates safety. Come in here and you should feel safe, yeah? You could relax a little more here than, let's say, you're walking in an area where it's, you're not sure, right? We get more tense. We're more alert. We're more on edge. So we create safety in our relationships the best we can, and then that fosters, that creates the conditions where our hearts and minds can settle more when we do formal practice. When we watch our breath, and we watch our footsteps, and we bring attention into our daily activities in a way that's present. So that, that gets developed. We work with right effort. We work with a light, steady touch. Sometimes we need more effort. Sometimes we're trying too hard. We feel that edge, and we see it, and we soften. And then once continuity of awareness, whether it's in formal practice or daily life, once that starts to grow, then we have some steadiness, some, some concentration, samadhi, you might call it. And then when all these conditions come together, how we actually perceive shifts. We perceive in a way that letting go is natural. And letting go is opening, it's inclusive, it's fuller. So then this is that, so when, when we're in the process, the meditative process, so that's the third part of the Eightfold Path, there's the orientation, the view, and then there's creating harmony and safety with our behavior. When we're in that, whether it's in daily life or formal practice, then when we're practicing mindfulness, okay, so there's, there's mindfulness, the non-judgmental present moment awareness, whatever arises within that, whether it's peace or whether it's some reactivity, that's what we're with. Because we created the cause and conditions where our life is actually here to wake us up. And we're, if, sure we have ideals of peace, but we actually can discover that we don't need peace to be peaceful. What? <laughs> We don't need to hold on to an ideal to actually realize that in the same way that we can be calm in the midst of outer conditions that are, that are not to our ideal, that are, that are suffering, that are jagged, that are in conflict, that we can do that with our inner experience as well. Because mindfulness, present moment awareness, itself is of the nature of the mind. It's our own inherent being. And so when we learn to rest and touch that, then whatever arises in that, outside or inside, what does it do? When you see clearly, what does it do to your freedom? How many people have, when, when you see, whether it's a pleasant thing or unpleasant, when you're really situated in being very clear and present, what happens? It opens, whatever it is, right? Isn't that amazing? And then we're like, huh. So that's, that's the simple power. And then there's a lot of wonderful teachings, um, like 
like Larry gives a great teaching from his from his main. We just I just had lunch with him and we we talked about this a little bit from uh, his one of his heart teachers, um, Krishnamurti. Larry said the last time he 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 worked with him, he said um, he was with a group in New York or something I think, and he said I want everyone to imagine that like you have a jewel in your hand. This is like the jewel. This is the key to your happiness, right here. This is the jewel of your life. He said, and I want everyone to open it up. It's fear. Get it? <laughs> so that's the reason. So that the example, and this was this was a very direct teaching, was that whatever your life is in that moment, that is what. And it can become a cliche, but it actually becomes a fact when we're situated, when when we are living in an open quality of steady peace and curiosity, being with what's there. So jewel, whatever is in there, whatever arises, that becomes what our life is in that moment, and therefore it is the door for greater freedom. And that is the transformative power of peace. It, it, it's the quality of our attention, care and attention in the moment. Okay? So, let's see. Okay, I'll, leave, I'll give you one more poem, and then I'll, we'll open it up, all right? That's a little heavy, so... Uh, there's a, there's a, so one way is that, so one way is, um, is that we, it happens naturally and we're work, all we're doing is working with the causes and conditions, okay? But then the second part, uh, to fill out my earlier thought is if, if in your clear seeing, there's the need to create peace through activity, through action that's strong, that's completely valid too. Right? That's not at war, like having, so Ashoka's empire didn't get transformed because he saw that monk. It's because his heart changed, and then he was very active and proactive in creating a different reality. It was through the insight that gave him the energy. He, he had a lot of energy, he just had to channel it differently. So when we see differently, when our hearts and minds are transformed, then Sometimes it happens quite naturally. So that's just like the, the, the real count was like that. It's like it just happens. You don't have to do it. And that's very important for us. And that's one of the ways. It, it's just a ripple effect. You don't try to change someone. <laughs> but you bring your full presence into your being, show up for them, and then be in touch with your own reactivity as well and stay present. And then sometimes out of that, you, won't, nothing will, you don't have to do anything. Other times you may find that strong action is required, but it comes from clear seeing. So transformative power doesn't just mean passive transformation, right? But the insight is always first. The clear seeing comes first. Then sometimes action is called for. Sometimes in the seeing itself, you don't need to act. The seeing is the action. Which I find quite beautiful because then it's, then we get into the level where this is, where this is really an art. Living from the present moment is really an art, and we enter into it without the fixations of, okay, inner peace is transformative. That means, okay, I'm never going to try to change anything, or that means I'm just going to have insights and I'm going to be a warrior out there. We don't get fixed in that. We don't get fixed in that pre, right? We're, we don't have that pre, we don't, I'm not preloaded. We're not preconditioned. We're, we're more trusting. We're more, coming into being from that place, and then what's called for. It's called sati sampajanya, of mindfulness, and then it's clear comprehension of what needs to be done in that moment. And because we're not so fixated on how it has to be, then we more and more surrender into the power of presence.
And that's where transformation comes from. Okay? Okay, I won't tell my poem. I'll tell my story if you want me to, but that's, that's, that's good. Okay, I'll tell it. So this was, it's just because it's, it's a nice day, and uh, <laughs> it's just one of my favorite poems. I don't even actually, I just thought of it a, a little bit ago, and it's, it's one of my favorite spring poems. Uh, and it's one, it's one side of the spectrum, and it's, uh, I don't actually, I, I'm not sure who was the poet either. It's an early Japanese uh, haiku poet. Is it, is it Basho? No, I don't think it's Basho. Anyways, it goes like this. It's very, it's very short. Spring comes. Who knows it? Do you know it? You want to recite it? No. <laughs> I might forget. Spring comes. No, doing nothing. Sitting. Yes, here it is. Sitting. Doing nothing. Spring comes. And the grass grows all by itself. Get it? <laughs> 